Um, I want to do part three of our series, and it's completely different, so if you've missed it, um, don't worry, because this is going to be completely different this morning. It's must-needs, it's a binding clause. Must-needs, it's a binding clause, part three. So open your Bible with me, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. You know what the the group had even picked? Uh, I don't ask them, really, unless it's a special request. Uh, I let the the Spirit move upon them what they want to sing, what they want to lead us in. And some of the songs they've picked even today, or hymns also, have been marvelous because it's going to really work in with the Word this morning. So we trust that the Lord will bless His Word as usual to all of our hearts. Matthew 16, we'll lift one verse, but keep your Bible open. Just turn to verse 21. Matthew 16, verse 21 says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful son. We thank you for the giving of his life, for the shedding of his precious blood. We thank you for your word that we have here that we can, Lord, study and learn more about him and about you. We ask you now, Father, that you'd shut us in with yourself and may your spirit may have free course in this meeting and upon our hearts. Among every one of us this morning, glorify the Lord Jesus. Father, without you, we can do nothing. Lord, if you're not moving, if you're not touching, if you're not anointing, if you're not blessing, if you're not drawing, if you're not speaking, then this word is flat and powerless. But Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your word is as, Lord, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and your word is as arrows going forth to every heart, and seed, that is good seed that will be sown on good ground this morning. So, Father, as our faces differ, so do our needs, and we ask you to remember those, Lord, who have come in with burdens and worries and fears and troubles, that you'd encourage them and bless them. We think of the sick, we think of those who cannot be with us, that you'd be with them at this time too, and those who are on holidays and having a break. We ask you, Lord, to encourage them and refresh them. And Lord, for those who will listen online or maybe watch uh, the, the very videos of these, Father, we ask you that you would, Lord, make it a blessing to them and challenge many hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name and we ask it for his glory. Amen. Amen. From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples. From what time forth? When you read something like that in Scripture, you have to go back. From what time forth? Um, without reading in the whole chapter of Matthew 16, you can read it when you go home. We'll give you some devotional reading to do. Uh, when you go there, you'll read that the Lord Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. It's a way, way up north, uh, way up around by the, way over the past the Sea of Galilee. And if you want, it's, it's what's known as the pinnacle of his ministry. In other words, if you can imagine a, a triangle or a mountaintop peak it said, here the popularity of Christ's ministry is because he's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been doing all of those things, and it comes to the place where now there's so many following him, he's up a hillside and he's teaching and he's preaching about things that are to come. So from this time forth, it's also in Matthew 16 that the Lord Jesus says, whom the men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And of course, The disciples around him, they retort back to him and answer him with, well, some say thou art John the Baptist, some say you're Elias, Jeremiah, 
or one of the prophets. And he says, but whom say ye that I am? Who do you say that I am? And they say, thou, Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice, here was the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here was the revelation of his deity and of his divinity. Here was the revelation that he is the Christ, notice the word, or the Messiah. It's becoming popular, and unfortunately it's in Pentecostal stroke charismatic circles uh, today that teaching from well-known evangelists are saying when Christ came, he wasn't Messiah. I have something to tell you, Christ has always been Messiah. He says, thou art the Christ, thou art Messiah, the Son of the living God. So whenever he came, he did come as Messiah, but he died as the Lamb. And of course, uh, Jesus then says, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, you've had divine revelation of who I am. You've had a divine revelation of the Son of God. You've had a divine revelation of my deity. You've had a divine revelation that I am the Almighty. You've had a divine revelation that I'm the Christ, that I am the Messiah, the one who was said to come. You're looking at him in a body of flesh. So it's after these things, we're told. After he tells them this, I'm the, I'm the champion. I'm the people's knight in shining armor. They seem to be reading into their ears. But Christ then changes their mind and says, no, I am Messiah, but this must come first. And he reads, we read in verse 21, from, the, from that time forth began Jesus to show on his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, he must suffer many things of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So he started to teach them, look, you're not expecting me to come in shining armor on a white horse. Don't expect me at this time to come riding in like your champion that you think. Don't expect me to come and wipe out all the Roman soldiers that are holding Jerusalem as you're looking for. He says, at this point in time, he says, you're not ready for me to do that, for when I eventually do that, my kingdom will come and we set up upon this earth. And of course, we're waiting for that Messiah to return, set up his kingdom. Revelation 19 speaks of our pictures, visions, our Lord Jesus coming in the clouds of glory upon a white horse, and his name is called the Word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. But before that, Jesus says, you're not ready. You must come through the cross if you're going to be in the kingdom. If there's no cross, then there is no kingdom. So here he says to them at this point, he says, I must go. Now here is our title, must needs, it's a binding clause. Must needs, it's a binding clause. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third, raised again the third day. Notice, now notice this. I must go. That means I must go to Jerusalem. And then it means in Jerusalem, I must suffer many things. I must be killed. And he says, I must be raised the third day. Now there you have your gospel in a nutshell in one verse. That's the whole entirety of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. He must go through that. If he doesn't, then you and I aren't saved, wouldn't be saved. If he didn't die for our sins, if he didn't, wasn't scorned, and he couldn't fulfill prophetic word. We're going to look at it in a moment. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, 
according to the Scriptures. In other words, he must be raised again on the third day. Now, notice this. Let's go and look at this verse. We want to break it down. First of all, he says, I must go to Jerusalem. Must needs. It's a binding clause. Remember the word must. It simply expresses necessity. It expresses certainty. A must also means something binding. Something binding. So when you must do something, you know, must needs is a good master. When you must do something, then it's binding. So let's look at this. He must go to Jerusalem. Now, why must he go to Jerusalem? One, simply because we looked at it in our first two parts briefly. We'll look at it briefly again. When Abraham was known as Abram, and the Lord made a covenant with him, and he told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, and to go to Mount Moriah and to offer him there for a sacrifice. You remember that. And how he goes up, and Isaac has the wood on his back, and here's the flame, and he says, Father, here's the wood, here's the flame. I mean, even there's a knife, but where's the, where's the sacrifice for the burnt offering? And, and Abraham says, Son, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And we looked at that, so it was here where the Lord had instituted this type of Christ dying. It was here where the Lord did provide himself as a sacrifice. Notice, God will provide himself. Remember I told you, it doesn't say God will provide for himself. It, the sacrifice wasn't for God. It was God providing himself for you. Did you hear that? And you get that now? God provided himself for you. God will provide himself a sacrifice. So here, one, this is where the Abrahamic covenant, what covenant was, the foreshadowing on the picture of Christ. Also, we have to remember, it was here then that the temple was built. And up to this time, we have heard of the, the various temples that have been through Israel history. At this time, the temple had become corrupt. But it was here that the temple would then be left uh, obsolete after the death of Christ. So Christ must go and accomplish this. And then, of course, this is where the Passover lambs were brought at Passover time. And they were killed and slain. And of course, Christ is the Passover lamb. So he must. It was a binding clause. He had to go to Jerusalem. And then secondly, he must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. In other words, he must suffer what was spoken of him in the prophetic word of the Old Testament you read. For example, there's many. But for example, Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. By the way, this was written around 710 B.C. 710 B.C. And notice the accuracy of the Holy Ghost here, moving among men. Micah 5 and verse 1 says, They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. In Matthew chapter 27, we read about this in verse 30 about them smiting the Lord Jesus with rods upon his cheek or his face. So he must suffer many things. For example, as well, in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 is written around the same time, maybe 710, 715, 712, somewhere around there, it's believed to have been written. It says, I give my back to the smiters. Thinking of the Roman lice, the flagellum whip. I give my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Mark 14 will tell you these things when they arrested the Lord Jesus. So he must go to fulfill this. 
It was a binding clause. Must needs. Brothers and sisters, sometimes in life we go through things and we just must go through it. Does it mean the Father, our Father God stops loving us or caring for us? No, it does not indeed. It doesn't mean that at all. It means there's for a greater plan and a greater purpose in your life. That God's going to do something with you, through you, and for you. That God's going to use you for his honor and for his glory. But it's learning to go through that. And it's learning when you come out that other side that he has known from the beginning to the ending where you're for, what he's going to do with you. Don't be discouraged this morning, but be encouraged that all things will work together for the good to them that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Are you saved this morning? Are you his then? You're in his purpose. God called you. You didn't choose him. He called you. He chose you. He has drawn you. He has saved you. See, it's all of him. And so you're in his purpose. And sometimes the plan of God seems uh, like a rough journey. You're speaking to the choir here, I think, aren't they? We're speaking to many who are thinking, yes, Lord, that's right. It's a rough journey. Yes, Lord, it can be hard. Yes, Lord, it can be uh, something that's strenuous. But nevertheless, uh, oh, we press on in. We press on in and we keep on going. And when you cannot trace God in your life, you trust God for your life. Let me say it again. When you cannot trace God in your life, you trust God for your life. Hear the Son of God. Hear the man Christ Jesus. Hear he, the beloved of the Father, was never stopped being loved by the Father. Yet he put him through all of this that you and I would be saved. That we'd be redeemed that you'd be bought, that you could sing like we sang that lovely hymn this morning, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power or wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Here, brothers and sisters, notice the love of God for you. Notice what Christ has done. You see, we tend to think that the, and, and a general lifestyle of the unsaved or, or even in religious circles that if we're religious enough, then God will accept us. Now, I have something to tell you, brothers and sisters. While, we, while we, we, we strive to serve the Lord as believers, I have something to tell you. No matter how much you do, does not make God love you any more than he does. It doesn't make him love you any less than he does either. When he set his love upon you, he never lift his love off from you. And you cannot make him love you more. But why don't you serve him? Because you do love him. Notice this. It says here of our Lord, I give my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And Pilate in John 19, we're told, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, if anyone had a right if anyone had an opportune time to say, Father, do you not love me? It would have been him. The beautiful, wonderful son of God. Do you not love me? Look what I'm going through. He knew what he was coming to do. He knew he was coming to serve the Father. And listen, there's, we kick and scream sometimes. Well, let me put it personally. I kick and scream sometimes. 
case somebody says, I don't kick and scream. I kick and scream sometimes. And the Father is laying things in me. And the Holy Spirit is convicting me or convincing me. And he's saying to me, get up and do, or come and go, or call to pray, or whatever. And I kick and scream. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want you to go here. I want you to give that up. I want you to go and speak to that person. I want you to be humble here. Whenever you feel like, you know, flattening someone's nose. (laughs) I want you to be gracious. I want you to be peaceful. And these things are coming, but the flesh is raging. And I'm kicking and I'm screaming and I'm saying, I'm not going and I'm not doing. But through it all, through all of it, it's coming and yielding myself to his will. And it's you yielding yourself to his will. Christ yielded himself fully, totally and completely to the will of his Father. Not because he thought his Father did not love him but because he knew his father did love him. Did you get that? We yield ourselves to the will of the father, not because we think he doesn't love us and he's a hard taskmaster. We yield ourselves in our will to the father because we know he does love us. Here, we see in this that the Lord must go to Jerusalem and he must be scourged by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And whenever he does this, he he goes because if he doesn't do this, he doesn't fulfill prophecy. Next it says, and he must be killed. Notice thirdly, he must be killed or he must die. You see, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Here is the Lamb of God that should come to bear away our sin. Here's the propitiation or the mercy seat of, for all the believers that will come unto God through him. And he's able to save all them that come unto God. And he saves you to the uttermost, the Bible tells us. In other words, when you truly, fully, with a repentant and a heart that really uh, calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, then you're saved. And God will save you, listen, for time and for eternity. Your past sins are washed away. Your present sins are no longer upon you. And your future sins, well, they're already dealt with. But it's up for us to walk before him. We'll talk more about that tonight. But notice this, brothers and sisters, and and, and grab hold of this. Who am I in Christ? Who are you in Christ? Maybe you're saying sometimes, what is this gospel? I know I'm a Christian, but what is this gospel? This gospel is that when Christ must go to Jerusalem, when Christ must be scourged, and when Christ Jesus knew he must be killed, he knew the lamb had to die to pay for it all. It is finished, he cried. Do you know as a a, a born-again, spirit-filled, blood-washed believer, Bible-believing believer, do you know that as you sit in your seat, When the Father looks at you, he sees you. Oh, you've got your failures and you've got your faults and you've got your letdowns and you've got your upsets and you've all of these things. And he sees you perfect. You know why? Because he sees Jesus. He sees you in him. You're just as if you'd never sinned. You're perfected in Christ. Now he works on us to make us more like his son. But our sins have been dealt with in him. This is the gospel. Maybe you're sitting saying, but we know all this and we're believers. This is a believers meeting this morning. And why do we need to know all this? Because it would surprise you many believers don't. Surprise you many believers uh, go cold in heart and fall away. Even 
at their own letdowns. Listen, you know me. I believe in living a, 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 a life of righteousness and holiness and as, as much as I possibly can, but I know it's not of myself. And I know my righteousness is of Christ. And I know that I'm justified in the sight of God because of him. But I believe in living right. I believe the Bible wants us to live right. I believe in being separate from the world. I believe all those things. But at the same time, I know when God looks at me, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. And believers fall away because they say, oh, I've let you down again. I can't go on. And they get down in heart and they go cold and they fall away. Next thing you know, they think there's no way back. Listen, brother, sister, see whenever you're, you, if you're a, a parent or even a grandparent, see when your children were born, could you say to them when they were naughty, you know what, you're going to be unborn. You're not mine anymore. Of course you didn't. You might be chastised them, but you brought them in the line and you kept loving them. Here, he must be killed He must die as God's lamb or the final lamb to be sacrificed, the supreme sacrifice. He must die as the last sacrifice of, and he must go to Jerusalem for this to happen. There was, and there's no other way. It's wrong, it's not politically correct today to say that Christ is uniquely, that Christ is solely, that Christ is only, that Christ is totally the only way to the Father. It's not politically correct now. I want to say, and I won't apologize for it, Christ is only, solely, totally, and Christ is fully the way to the Father. There's none other. There's none other. Here, There's no other way. There's no other option. There's no secondary avenue for a man or a woman to go down to attain the kingdom of God. There's no plan B. Abraham's faith in the word of God of the sacrificial offering of Isaac, he says, I'll make you a nation and a company of nations, or I'll make you many, a king king shall come out of you, and I'll make you a father of many nations, and yet... He had one son at that very last moment of promise and one of, that wasn't of promise, Isaac and Ishmael. And then God says, take thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and go and offer him for a burnt offering. Go and burn him to a crisp. Put in the knife and burn him to cinders. Burn him to dust. Burn him to ashes. But did you not say, Isaac is my seed called? He says, yes, but you need to trust me. You need to trust me. Brother, there's a word for you, sister. Father, I can't see past today. I don't know about tomorrow. Here's your word. It says you need to trust me. You need to trust me, he said. And when we see our impossibility, and when we see the negativity, fear comes. Fear, F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. But it's false. It's a lie. 
The Lord says, take them and burn them. And we're told that Abraham would take him up and God would provide himself a lamb. We're told at this time that Abraham, after seeing the ram caught in the thicket, calls the place Jehovah-Jerah. In other words, the Lord will provide. You need to trust him, brother, sister. The Lord's going to provide. Church, see whatever we need. See whatever the future God has for this assembly. We need to trust him. God's going to provide. He's Jehovah-Jerah. Now notice this. He takes him up and he calls it Jehovah Jireh. It says, the Lord will provide, and the Lord provided what? Aram. Aram speaks of the Father. The Father provided himself, sending his Son, represented in Christ. Boy, such a mystery. On the same mount, Jesus now goes, and Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. Stay with me. He says he must be killed because it was necessary. It was binding. If he didn't die, we wouldn't be saved. Read Psalm 22 when you go back, and every time you read back home, and when you read Psalm 22, think of Calvary. Think of what he went through. Put Christ in that stead and see where he is there. David talking of the psalm of the cross. And then go to Isaiah 53 and see Christ hang on the cross again, hundreds of years before his birth. And then Revelation 13 and 8 sees the the risen ascended Christ, but John sees him as a lamb. Notice, he says, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That's who he sees. So he must suffer and he must be killed. Now, stay with me, folks. This is important because this is going to really dig deep into what this whole, uh, what this whole salvation means and, and what God has done and shown to us at Calvary. He must suffer and he must be killed. It proves two great facts. And if I can put this across, Lord, help me to put this across to these people to your people. Whoever would hear this, help me to put it across, Lord. Two great facts at Calvary. One, it shows and manifests man's sin. Write it down. It shows and it manifests man's sin. Secondly, it shows and it manifests God's great love. And let me try and dissect this for a few moments. His death was the ultimate example of man's sinful, depraved nature being against God and man and his nature being an enemy of God. This is what this shows. Crucify him. Away with him. Crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. It says, crucify him. And it shows what they did to him. It shows man's depravity. It shows the, the very nature that we are born with. It it was also the supreme expression of God's love 
to man. His love is and was eternally in God, but was historically made visible and manifest to you and I in the Lord Jesus Christ. This great love that was shown, God already had it for us way in eternity. And throughout eternity, he gave us glimpses of the cross. He gave us glimpses of the Lamb. He gave us foreknowledge and foreshadowings of Christ. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, glimpses, glimpses, building up, building up, building up, prophetic utterance, prophetic word comes. Then suddenly he says, and here is my love, and here is my son. He shows him on the cross. In 1 John 4, 9, says, and this was manifest the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the mercy seat, if you want, for our sins. Listen to Romans 5 and 8. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, take this on board when you go home. See if you get this sort of stuff into your being. Listen, I could come here. I have another message written in the middle of that, and it's just a general message to tell you a wee story and to say, here's bits and pieces here, and add it together and say, here's how you should act as a Christian church. And that's okay. That has its place. But see if I'm coming to you and I'm telling you nice, fanciful stories. See when you go home, And see whenever the storm comes and hits your home and it hits your life. And see whenever the devil comes to try you and to test you and to tempt you. And see when you fall and you don't know who your God is nor who you are in your God. And you don't know who you are in Christ. You know what's going to happen? You're going to go to pieces. It's the word in you. It's taking the word. Understanding this and saying, this will put, this will make you go. If you grab hold of this, this will make you go out like a firebrand for God. But be be aware, if you want to be a firebrand, people are going to notice you and you're going to burn others. Notice this. But God commendeth his love toward us and why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yet sinners, Christ died for us. See the word commendeth. Commendeth. It's a Greek word, synestomy. Or Senastemi, so whatever way you want to pronounce it. It comes from a word sun, which means with, with, and histemi, which means to stand. So with and to stand. So God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do we, how do we put this into this uh, wonderful gospel? How do we set this in our lives? How do we work this out, and how would this strengthen us even further? Stay with me, look. It gives the idea of to set one person or thing with another by the way of presenting it or commending it. I'll say it again, then I'll tell you what it means. To set one person or thing with another by way of presenting or commending it. Okay, stay with me. Luke chapter 9 and verse 32. And we can also read about this in Matthew 17 after our reading this morning. But look, look, chapter 9 and verse 32. Peter, James, and John are taken by our Lord up the mount. 
And he has what's called transfigured glistering and, and, and brilliance of white, brighter than the sun before him. And we're told that Moses and Elijah, or Elias, I will say, for the Greek term, Moses and Elias, or Elijah, were seen with him in this vision. Notice. It says in Luke 9.32, And when they were awake, they saw his glory. This is the transfigured Christ. They saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Now, see the term stood with him. It's the word synestomy. Synestomy. It's the same word for, but God commendeth his love toward us. It's the exact same word. How do we work it out that Moses and Elijah, standing with Christ on this vision on the mount, how do we work this out that it's the same as God commendeth his love? It's very simple. Stay with me. For example, Matthew 5 and 17. You see, if you notice, they saw his glory and the two men, with the two men, he stands out, as it were, in a league of his own. Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. Jesus said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So here is Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. They, Luke tells us, stood with him. Yet the disciples, notice, did not center on the law. You know why? Because the New Testament tells us, Paul says, the law was our schoolmaster to point us or to lead us to Christ. Now notice that. The law is our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. And then they did not center on Moses or on the law. They recognized it. They knew it was there. Nor did they dwell on the prophets. Because Acts, uh, the book of Acts tells us that uh, of our Lord Jesus and the prophets, it says, to him, to Jesus, give all the prophets witness. So they recognized the law. They recognized the prophets. But all of it was centered with Christ in the middle. Stood with him. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now notice this. The disciples recognized the greatness of Moses, the lawgiver, and they acknowledged the fervent fire of the prophet Elijah. But even when they stood with him, that's the word synestomy, when they were set beside him, when they were beside the Son of God, we are told the disciples looking on them saw his glory. Just him. saw just him. Now get this. Get this. They saw his glory. They, as Moses once came down the mount from the presence of God, Moses came down and he wist not that the skin of his face shone. Remember they put a veil on it? They were seeing, as it were, reflective glory. But when they looked at Christ in the fullness of deity at his transfiguration, as it's called on the mount, they saw the projection of glory through his humanity. He's a wonderful Savior. He's a wonderful God. So what does this mean But God commendeth his love toward us? It means standing with Jesus, even in their In their glory, they simply could not compare nor outshine the Son of God. In other words, 
Jesus is head and shoulders. Jesus is high and lifted up. Jesus is above all others, above all else, above all things. He is the chiefest among 10,000. That means he's the chiefest among 10,000. Preach, then bring another 10,000, then bring another 10,000, bring another and another and another and another until you exhaust the priests and kings and kings and kings and kings. And if you bring prophets and prophets and prophets and prophets, Christ is the chiefest of all of them. His glory shines in the middle. His glory shines above all others. So God commended his love. Listen, his love when placed against even your love for your children. Think how much you love them. Think what you do for your own children. Think how you give your life for your own children. Think how you do without for your children. Think how much your heart beats for your children. How your children are your very life. Think about it and then place it with the love of God for his children, for you. And it means it's way above your understanding. That's what it means. But God, his love stood beside the love of this world and the love of men. And the love of fathers and mothers for children and outshines and outstrips it all for his own. That's what it means. And even at that, you were still a sinner, rotten to the core. He says, I love you. I love you. He sent Christ to die. He must be guilty. Five minutes and I'm finished, okay? I'm long this morning. Five minutes. Getting excited again. How can you not? How can you not? Thirdly, he must be raised the third day. He must. It's binding. If Christ died, and if Christ went to the tomb, into the grave, and still was in the tomb and in the grave, you and I, our faith stroke, we would have religion. We serve a living saviour. Our religion, that's all it would be, not living relationship. Our, our religion that we would have would be no different than every other one. You know the difference in your faith and others' religion? I serve a living saviour. He's risen from the dead. Christ is alive. He's alive after the power of an endless life. He was raised by his father. The Holy Ghost came and raised him from the dead, we're told. He was raised by Almighty God. Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's glorified and he's seated at the right hand of God. This is our Savior. Is it any wonder he's way above all others? Brother, sister, how do you feel about him this morning? What do you think of Christ? What think you of Christ? Yea, he is chiefest among 10,000. He must be raised. Psalm 16 and 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell or Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. And of course, Acts 2 and 27, Peter rehearses that at the resurrection of Christ. So he must be, he must be raised to fulfill scripture. Secondly, he must be raised for our justification. There are other verses, but I'm just giving you these to finish. Romans 4 and 25 says, Of Christ, who was raised for our offenses and was 
who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, to make sure that you're just as if you'd never sinned, as Christ has risen and is perfected, taking away our sin, so our sin are taken away when he took it away, and as he is raised, so we are raised in him. And thirdly, he was raised again the third day for the hope of the resurrection. Of course, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4 and 14, know that ye... Know that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus. And lastly, he was raised that our faith and hope might be in God alone. First Peter 1 and 21, in whom you do believe, it says that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Brothers and sisters, you and I have a wonderful gospel to tell. And if you can't go home after that and say, Lord, you love me that much. When I think of my past, when I think of my lifestyle, when I think of the things I got up to, and I think of it, I'll say, Lord, I don't know why me. I'll never understand it, but I'm grateful. I want to serve you. I want to praise you. I want to be faithful to you. Lord, I love you because you first loved me.